Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunselman, and this episode we're looking at the geography of the United States, not the amber waves of grain or the purple mountains majesty. We're looking at the lines people have drawn, whether they're congressional district lines or city boundary lines or something else. And the topography of the social geography illustrates some stark inequalities. We spoke with two social scientists who researched the impact that place has on politics, policy, and inequality. And the research shows us that whether it's political, economic, or racial, in the United States, place matters. Play ball. So let's start out with the big picture, and then we'll zoom in. If you imagine a map of the U.S. with its 50 states, you might automatically start to fill in red and blue corresponding with their political leaning. Texas in the south would be conservative and red, while California in the west would be liberal and blue. But that color coding doesn't actually give us information about where Democrats and Republicans live. We need to take a look at the urban and rural areas to put together a more interesting map. Democrats are highly clustered in, uh, in urban areas, uh, major metropolitan areas that developed manufacturing activities late in the in the 19th century, early in the 20th century. This is... I'm Jonathan Roden from Stanford University. Jonathan stopped by the LSE recently to talk about his research on the geographical distribution of political preferences. Interestingly, Democrats are not only concentrated in these larger cities, but also in some of the smaller industrial agglomerations along railroad lines uh, and lakes. So places like, uh, like Buffalo, New York, or Rochester, or Syracuse. Uh, that have populations that are that are much smaller. So you'll usually find Democrats and left-leaning populations in the industrial centers. And when Democrats identified urban workers as their base and started to focus their appeals on working-class populations in cities, a clear relationship between urban places and left-leaning politics started to emerge. One of the things that's interesting about the United States is that that relationship has increased over time. So the correlation between population density and Democratic voting has been increasing with each election uh, since, since the 50s. So... We have more left-leaning voters in the concentrated urban areas and more right-leaning voters in the expansive rural areas. And when we zoom back out to the state-level view, there's an interesting phenomenon in our electoral maps. Even if a party loses statewide elections by a significant margin, they will still probably win seats in the legislature. Because voters, as we've been discussing, are not evenly distributed in space. So if a party lost... 70 to 30, and those uh, 30% of the votes were perfectly evenly distributed in space, it wouldn't matter how we drew electoral districts. But if we start looking at a situation where those votes are clustered, then the minority party can start to win some seats. So we're referring to that as the loser's bonus, the, the seats that are won by the party that is a statewide minority. For example... So if we uh, look at a state like New York, which is one that developed early uh, manufacturing employment, uh, and it's where Democrats are very strong. If we look at a state like that, uh, even though we expect Democrats to win statewide elections much of the time, and they do win Senate seats, and uh, with some exceptions, they've been successful in gubernatorial races in New York, uh, we can expect the Republicans to win a number of seats in the legislature because there are 
concentrations of support such that Democrats are highly concentrated in cities uh, and Republicans are m more efficiently distributed in rural and suburban areas. And we draw districts of 700,000 roughly for Congress, we will inevitably draw some districts that uh, have Republican majorities. So that's, that's uh, how it works in a, in a very democratic state. And what about an example from the GOP? In a very Republican state like Tennessee, it is also the case that even though the Democrats are a, are a rather uh, small minority of the voters in Tennessee, they happen to be concentrated in space in a way uh, that, that is good for them. Uh, they're concentrated in, in Memphis and Nashville in such a way that when we draw these partitions of winner-take-all districts, the Democrats are very likely to win two of those, even though they're in very bad shape in statewide elections. So this is uh, this concept of the loser's bonus. Um, because of the concentration of support for parties in space, it is, uh, it's something that emerges for both parties in different places. So we can understand why we have Republican members of Congress elected in California and Democratic members elected in Texas. The minority voters are clustered into specific geographic areas, but it doesn't always work out this way. Take South Carolina. Where it's a, it's a highly Republican state, uh, but Democrats don't really have um, these urban concentrations of the kind that I described in Tennessee. Uh, they're, they're, there's a lot of... Uh, of geographic dispersion of Democrats, especially African-Americans who uh, are, are, tend to be more rural in South Carolina than in some other places. And when you take all of this together, it actually results in a system that greatly benefits Republicans. Jonathan's research has shown that the conditions of congressional districts in the United States are a near ideal system for electing Republicans. It's largely just because the state's where the Republicans benefit from the loser's bonus tend to be larger states. So New York and California are a couple of good examples. Uh, some of the other large states of the Northeastern manufacturing core are also places like this where Democrats expect to do well in statewide elections, uh, but Republicans do surprisingly well in congressional districts. There are, of course, states that work in the opposite direction, as we've discussed, Tennessee being one. Uh, the largest one by far is Texas. Uh, another one is Georgia. And Democrats do get the loser's bonus in those states, but there aren't many other Republican states with big populations where Democrats can pick up a good number of seats. So it's, it's, a, it's largely a function of the way the industrial geography is divided up into states uh, and the size of those states. So this clearly has an impact on the makeup of Congress, but what other implications are there from this political geography? A world where, uh, where, the, where left voters are, are more concentrated in space than right voters might produce different policies in the long run than one in which uh, the, the parties are, are evenly distributed in space, uh, which also suggests that it matters what type of institutions are, are used. So... Um, so I think one of the more surprising findings is that if we take the same people, they're, they're distributed in space in the same way, and impose different institutions, uh, we might expect to see different results. Okay, and what different types of policies would we see? So if we're looking at cities? Well, I mean, I think the, the issue is not just cities. It's sort of cities and suburbs. And that is... 
I'm uh, Margaret Weir, and I am a professor of political science and international affairs at Brown University. In some poor suburbs, people are actually worse off than in cities. I mean, I think Flint would be like some of these very poor suburbs because they have a very a weak fiscal capacity. There's mainly poor people living there, so they can't raise a lot of tax revenue. And, um, and they don't have very much of an organizational legacy of, of nonprofits that can take government money. Most cities have something of a nonprofit sector, and it varies, of course. So I don't think it's the difference so much as which cities are better than other cities, but what are the endowments that different types of places have? And so that some places have stronger fiscal sectors, and so they can do more, and there's more you can that low-income people can try to contend to get a piece of the pie. So places like New York are going to be better than places like Detroit in the sense that you can, um, that, that organizations of low-income people can contest for government funds. But one of the problems, of course, in the places that are more flush is can you stay there? And that's the issue of gentrification. Which is an extreme level in places like San Francisco where there's a lot of displacement going on. So yes, they have the ability to provide stronger assistance, but more and more people are being displaced. And then the question is, so it's great you have a lot of services in San Francisco or a lot of benefits in San Francisco. And in fact, San Francisco is the only place in the country that has what's called health access, where if you live in the city of San Francisco, you have guaranteed health care, including if you're undocumented. It's in one of the only places in the country that has that. But increasingly, people can't afford to live in San Francisco. So then the question is, well, what are the places where they're going like? What benefits do they have? What's the transportation like if you need to come back to San Francisco? What kind of burden does that place on you? So let's go back to the urban-suburban divide which is wider than a six-lane highway. Should we say that's pretty big? (laughs) So I think the organization of urban space is particularly significant in the United States because of our racial history, that race and space have long been intertwined in urban America. And this goes back to the post-World War II era when the United States, and particularly the suburbs, were growing. One way to think about what occurred was... um, a lot of investment, public investment in suburbs that was made available to whites but was disentangled from uh, African Americans, uh, were not able to get that housing, they couldn't get money through the Veterans Administration for their loans, there were uh, restrictive covenants that prevented them from buying in suburban areas, so you ended up with the classic uh, black city, black poor city richer white suburb and you know that has had enduring impacts in terms of white wealth and uh, uh, most of white wealth comes from uh, home ownership and appreciation of homes. Uh, African Americans were not able to get in on that and so even though income levels of middle-class African Americans have risen there's huge gaps in uh, wealth so it has had that enduring impact But Margaret points out that this dichotomy is not quite accurate. 
this image of black city, black poor city, rich white suburb, in a way was always an exaggeration. There were always places of suburban poverty uh, and parts of the city were well off. And it is certainly not true uh, today. So today I think we have a much more uh, complicated political geography with many places of suburban poverty, a majority of, of Poor people, officially classified as poor by the census, live in suburban areas, uh, not in cities, although the rates of poverty are higher uh, in cities. So, so we have a much more complicated political uh, geography that I think we don't yet understand, and we don't understand what it means for providing uh, serv needed services to poor people and um, addressing their problems. And we have a disjuncture between federal policy for poor people, which assumes that people are mobile. It assumes that organizations will emerge to assist them. It assumes that individuals will make, um, uh, make their own way um, and are responsible and can become self-sufficient. These are all the kind of um, uh, code words in federal policy. Um, but on the other hand, we have subnational politics and policy that are all about creating barriers, um, uh, creating boundaries, reinforcing boundaries, limiting possibilities for movement across those boundaries, and with very limited ability to ensure that places uh, have the ability to actually deliver even basic services in the United States. And of course, you see this in the case of Flint, where they couldn't even deliver water that wouldn't poison um, the children. The cost of housing is clearly at the heart of this issue. Margaret's research highlights that it's not the federal or state government doing much of the work to build and provide affordable housing in poor American cities and suburbs, but rather nonprofit organizations and they have to build it through a very complex funding, set of funding arrangements where some of the money comes from tax credits that come from the federal government, some of the money comes from grants that come from the federal government, some of it. Uh, so they face a lot of challenges in assembling packages of financing to build affordable housing. The knowledge that these nonprofits have amassed in order to assemble these complex packages of financing and to provide affordable housing can be considered a big success. However, there has been criticism of, uh, of that model in part because they're building affordable housing largely in places that are not places of opportunity. They tend to build the affordable housing in areas that are already uh, poor and heavily minority areas. It was just a Supreme Court challenge, um, and it was decided in June, the uh, Inclusive Communities case, where this practice was challenged in Dallas, and the court ruled in favor of the uh, challengers, saying that uh, too much affordable housing is being built in places of low opportunity. So that's actually kind of an, an interesting uh, set of conflicts that many of these organizations that build the housing are located in cities and in parts of cities that have poor services, poor um, access to transportation. And so now the question is, will they, will that nonprofit 
uh, sector be able to start building in places that have more opportunity in terms of access to jobs in particular, and also better school. And nonprofits go well beyond housing. In cities across America, they provide transportation, job training, and a very wide range of services. So we have a clear picture of wealth inequality, and Margaret's research shows how nonprofits are doing a bulk of the work to support low-income communities, particularly in cities. But shouldn't cities, the municipalities themselves, be working on reducing this inequality? Yeah, I think there's a, a huge role that they could play. Um, and cities are um, a little bit funny in this regard because historically, perhaps with the exception of New York, most cities do not spend very much money on redistribution. You know, cities, the old argument is that city, American cities are in competition with one another and they want to attract uh, the best high-paying people, they want to attract industries, they don't want people who are going to be a net burden on their coffers. Um, New York City has always been something of an exception just because it is such a, a wealthy city historically. Now, of course, as with everything in a bureaucracy, this takes quite a bit of money. But even if cities don't put a lot of, of their own money into assisting low-income people. There's a variety of things they can do. One thing they can do is apply to the federal government for funds. A lot of federal funding uh, is competitive funding. Um, uh, under Obama, there were a number of different programs that were introduced that were all about competition, sustainable communities uh, grants. And so local governments that then serve to bring together the nonprofit sector in a way where they could make the argument that we're building some kind of synergy here to address these issues of public-private. The other kind of thing they can do is to really help create a system among these various nonprofits that deliver services to low-income communities. Because a lot of time you have, you know, really there is no system. There's a bunch of nonprofit organizations and they're not very effectively coordinated. So one of the things that city governments can do is to try to build some kind of logic into a system that grew up in a very sort of non-logical way or kind of haphazard way. And, and some city governments have done that. Uh, New, York, um, New York City under Bloomberg tried to rationalize the whole um, sector uh, of um, early childhood education but Margaret says this nonprofit governmental setup and perhaps even the geography of inequality are poised for change. I think that the United States is on the cusp of change. I just don't know how long, how large that cusp is. We have now a really diverse population. The kind of set of people who hated social policy and viewed it as a giveaway to African-Americans, that group is shrinking. They may be vocal supporters of Donald Trump, <laughs> and they may be vocal, but significant places in the United States, we have suburbs that are extremely diverse with people at different income levels, people that have different backgrounds from the you know, black-white antagonism that has defined the United States. So in that sense, I think we are 
close to coming to a very different era where we rethink what is the responsibility of government to assist people. And I have to say, you see it even in the Trump phenomenon, that it's people who are hurt by trade, who don't have any good job, job prospects. It gets expressed in this you know, kind of conservative, uh, populist way. So I think that there is a broad concern about the well, how can people get ahead in the United States? What's a fair chance? What's a fair opportunity? So in that sense, I am more hopeful uh, about the future than uh, perhaps things might look right now. So now I'm joined by my co-hosts, Denise Barron. Hey there. And Chris Gilson. Howdy. Hey, Chris. Um, and we're just going to jump straight into the conversation. Chris, would you like to start us off? Sure. I, uh, some of my background is on geography and uh, with inequality as well, too. So this, both of these interviews were really, really interesting. This is your jam. This is my jam, as it were, yeah. Um, so just starting off with, with Rodden's interview... He was talking about how Democrats are clustered on uh, transport lines and railway lines and around by lakes. And that sort of made me think, is that because traditionally Democrats have been more working class, so they've been clustered in areas that are more to do with working class jobs? So if you think lakes and, and rivers are really good for ports and transport and uh, railway lines are similar. And likewise, they talk about clustering in cities. So cities have tended to be historically where manufacturing jobs are based. So they're sort of the makers. Now, if you look at Republicans, they tend to be sort of clustered in more rural areas, so farming, kind of more the producing areas rather than the sort of transporting and more mm -hmm. or putting mm -hmm. things together. I wondered if there was anything in that, and maybe as we transfer to an economy that is kind of not really based on the more traditional things, will that will that tra change, or will be will those uh, things have a legacy that continues? And that's the thing with uh, with Rodden's research that really jumped out to me was more like the implications on policy. And I started to think about: is it place that impacts policy, or is it policy that impacts impacts place? It's probably both. But for instance, uh, if we were to take an example of a of a policy that's very different in different parts of the country, it's gun control laws, and then preference towards gun control laws. So, for instance. In cities that are more left-leaning, like you talked about, you're more likely to have people in favor of uh, gun restrictions. And part of that might be because they're more fearful of gun violence. It's a little bit closer. You have denser populations. A gun is a scary thing in a large crowd of people. But then on the other hand, in a rural area, you have people who are more enthusiastic about gun rights. And when you think about the reasons for that, they are more fearful, perhaps, of intruders. They have to look after their own land, their own families. It takes a sheriff, you know, 20 minutes to a half hour, perhaps, to get to their house if they call 911. And they grow up with it in wide open spaces where a gun doesn't mean um, violence, it means safety. And so you think about, okay, are people going to these different locations? Are they clustering around uh, cities or rural areas because it matches their, ide or their ideology? Or are they living in those places and the density of the population impacts the way that they look at the issues? I mean, I don't think we can say definitively either way. I think to that, though, there are exceptions because if we look at Vermont, um, that's a pretty democratic state and we have Bernie Sanders who is more in favor of like, common sense gun control instead of just gun control restrictions. But he, for and a Democrat, is pretty far right on, on gun control. I mean, he, he is not... 
the gun violence prevention community is not a fan of him because he has voted a little bit more conservatively. And I think you see that from places like New Hampshire, Vermont. But aren't they more rural states? Exactly. Yeah. But they are still very left-leaning on yeah. other issues. So I think that there are some political issues, ideological issues, that seem to match up more with the urban-rural divide that uh, Ron's talking about, while perhaps, I don't know, I mean, what's another... Well, if you look at, say, uh, things like abortion rights, right. that doesn't seem to me to have, uh, at least as my awareness, to have a rural-urban divide. In the South, would most big cities be where, where, where are the concern? <clears throat> I mean, you end up seeing it pan out that way, but I just don't know if you can see the same, like, chicken and the egg mm -hmm. conundrum with, like, is it the proximity of living next to people that causes an ideology? Sure. Or is it the, you know, kind of ideology that just seems to cluster in certain well, areas? Thinking about, like, isn't there a city in, um, is it Austin in Texas is really left-wing? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, because yeah. I, you know, when you talk to people from Texas, like, you know, I presume Houston and places are more right-wing. So well, Houston's you, relatively left-wing, oh, well? too. Yeah. So could that be a lot of the sums, using Texas as an example, we think of Texas being this really right-wing state. Right. But is that sort of the, the rural suburbs and then the, the urban clusters are more left-wing possibly. So maybe that, again, that's what we're seeing. Right, right, so exactly. On a lot of issues. It's the same, I mean, when you bring up like California and uh, our McCarthy, the guy who was like the heir apparent to John Boehner to take over mm -hmm. uh, Speaker of the House and that kind of blew up in his face. He's a Republican, obviously, and he's a pretty solid Republican or else he wouldn't have been in line to follow Boehner. But, and he's from California. Like, you know, like Ren was saying, there's that, what was it, the... Um, the losers. The losers bonus. The losers bonus. You can get these seats in these states where you don't have the majority of voters, but you're clustered in these areas. And then also, what can happen as well, such as like he was saying in Tennessee, then they don't get, um, since they're clustered so tightly, then it's like one seat is super democratic rather than three seats being pretty democratic. Mm -hmm. One point I wanted to go back to of yours, Denise, was the idea that like, owning a firearm in rural areas is more about protection. Mm -hmm. And I think that while they, that may be true in principle, we see in practice, maybe it relates to more violence um, than in urban areas. And what I'm thinking of particularly is this idea of like the castle doctrine. And mm -hmm. that's when if I own a ranch in Montana and I feel that I'm under threat, I have the right to shoot first and ask questions later. And that's, I think, what often leads to the most violence. I think I read once this really sad story about um, this group of high school kids who just snuck into some guy's garage to steal some beers, and they got shot because, mm -hmm. and that was a legal and um, illegal thing to do because of this castle doctrine, because of this idea that people in rural areas have the right to own guns. And I'm sure, like, there's a bear that gets shot once a year or so um, for protection, but. The idea, well, I'm just saying that maybe those laws can lead to just as violent outcomes yeah. as they can. Right, so right. I'm talking more about the perception than the actual. So just actually with, with my ignorant UK hats on, is, <laughs> like, is rural crime a thing? Like, is it just sheep rustlers? Like, in terms of, you know, there's in urban areas, you know, there is a, a perception of crime real or imagined, and you can sort of play out the things that might happen in terms of burglary. But like in rural areas, is it that common? Like, I, yeah. do you, are, you, are you people going to drive over to your house and try and kill you to steal your livestock? Or Well, okay, you know? so two things on that. I was just talking recently with someone about this because I, I grew up in a small town, mm. not like out in the country, but it's a small town. And uh, they were asking me, like, do people lock their doors in your town? And I was like, yes, of course they do. You know, that that's a very, like, 
1960s thing that only lives on in Michael Moore movies when he goes to Canada and opens up people's doors. Um, so I think that there is, even if, there, and this leads to the next point, is that the perception and of crime and the fear of crime is the important thing, mm -hmm. not the actual crime rates. Because we don't react to statistics. We react to the occurrences of crime, whether or not they're rare or frequent, and then we we build it up in our minds. And unfortunately, we, we make policy based on those perceptions as well. That's interesting, because this kind of relates to a point that um, we are alluded to and discussed in her later evening lecture, but not in the interview. But that kind of perceptions of fear and that we're under threat is kind of what leads to the rise of gated communities in the United mm. States. Um, and I saw that there's over 10 million um, housing units that are in gated communities nowadays. And it's this idea that because um, wealthy, middle class, usually white people are under threat um, by their surroundings, which are violent and urban and crime riddled, right, right. that we need to put up these literal walls to protect ourselves, which creates this kind of bunker mentality that's very polarizing and only furthers this us and them idea when often the perception of threat is much greater than the actual threat. Right. So to switch gears a little bit, uh, one thing from Margaret Weir's research that was interesting to me is the role of nonprofits in addressing wealth and resource inequality. Uh, because she, she basically highlighted the point how in the U.S., as opposed to other Western countries, the government isn't always the entity that's advocating and looking out for the poorest individuals. And instead, you have this group or kind of, I don't want to say industry because they're not making tons of money off this, <laughs> but a let's call it an industry of nonprofits and NGOs whose focus is to um, help low SES people access housing and health care, um, help them navigate the laws and policies that exist. And in my mind, this when she, when she highlighted those in that way, it sort of offered this interesting contrast to the, uh, what the moneyed interests have on their behalf. They have lobbyists and they make significant political contributions. And what they're doing is influencing policy at the creation end, while these nonprofit groups that Weir highlights, they're basically dealing with the policies and trying to make them work for this other population. And sure, there are some groups whose role is to advocate for the um, creation of policy, but they also they have to deal with all of these other needs and resource issues first before they can get to addressing and crafting policy. So there, would you say they're more the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff? They're kind of the delivery. Right. They're kind of dealing with all the, the stuff that's come through and dealing with the, the negative consequences of, of the policies that have been enacted right. farther up the line. Right. And therefore, they have less resources themselves as organizations to then work on crafting legislation. Or not legislation, but more like policy laws, because they're more on the uh, municipal level and perhaps the state level, but much more on a city-based level. It's interesting you talk about how sort of fragmented these things are, I think, uh, in terms of they're often per city or maybe per region, whereas if you look at a lot of the sort of the bigger lobbying groups that are lobbying higher, like ALEC, Mm -hmm. and things like that they're kind of often countrywide or certainly like massive region-wide and I wonder if there's more and I talk about this from a position of ignorance that this may exist already but it's certainly not on my radar if there could be more done to be sort of nationwide lobbying that would then filter down the same way and okay there's never going to be as much money but I wonder if they could adopt more than the national right, right. or sort of the congressional level lobbying that the, yeah. the other side does that oh yeah and helpful. that I mean it's so you mentioned ALEC yeah. and they're that conservative group who basically helps uh, state legislators push conservative issues sometimes you'll find 
a whole bill or just clauses of a bill that are completely lifted from the ALEC playbook. Uh, there is a new organization that's attempting to be the liberal ALEC. It's called SIX, the State Innovation Exchange. And they are pushing for minimum wage increases, pay equity. Um, you know, they have a lot of the economic issues on their agenda that basically state legislatures were pushing on their own, but they didn't have a coordinated national effort. And they did this because, if you're exactly right, there's this vacuum. The conservatives were doing it much better than the liberals. I mean, I'm going to bring in, so you're talking about social inequality, so I'm going to bring in the G word, because it's one of my favorite words, gentrification. Mm. And I know Margaret Weir mentioned it in terms of it as something that can displace people. But I do wonder if we consider that it's too much of a boogeyman. And actually, is it possible that gentrification might increase capacity on some level? So you get in a lot of people who are perhaps have more money, have more time, who can actually help out. And if you look at a lot of community organizations in the UK, they tend to be people sort of who are older, who maybe uh, have a bit more money. Some of them have been there for a while, but you get then they get sort of younger people. If you look at places like Hackney and things like that, there's lots of community community organizations sort of that are kind of linked to Silicon Roundabout. Is there any? Is, can gentrification be a force for good, or is it just displacing people in a horrible way? Well, I just, I mean, so I have, perhaps this is a bit of a controversial view. I can't, I have a hard time looking at gentrification as a blanketed bad thing or good thing, right? Because it just kind of is. When, when money shifts in a smaller economy and people move around and are making money, more money, then it changes the geographic landscape of where they're living, hmm. right? And so I don't know the word for the opposite of gentrification, <laughs> or, or even when they're getting worse, you know. So, like, what was happening in, in Chicago in the 90s? Everyone's leaving the city, too. They're moving to the suburbs. Population density is going down, and crime was going up, and wages were going down. And so, I mean, it's kind of more of a, it's a flow of people and money within a city. But what about all those people that are being pushed out? that were in the outskirts of Chicago and then they've been outpriced and they can no longer to live, afford to live there. Like, I, I see that as a huge problem, that there's a mentality that because I'm young, successful, and rich, I have the right to kind of live where I want, even though that was where someone else lived before. But I, I have more money than them, so I can kind of take well, it I over. I guess, I mean, I don't think about it as rights. They have the resources to live where they want, too. I, is, it, is it inherently a bad thing that places change as resources change? Not necessarily, but it just depends. I mean, it's interesting we're talking about what the opposite of gentrification, I've realized it's white flight. Hmm. So if you look at sort of the, the history of the urban core of the states, you know, you have the, the sort of inner cities lost you know, most of the, the sort of white middle class population in the 50s and 60s. And you had sort of these decaying inner ghetto zones, which then were very cheap. And then so you have the original artists coming in in sort of the 80s and 90s buying up property. And because they've sort of laid the groundwork, then you have all the sort of the, the hipsters and stuff coming in after that. But what the unspoken thing is you have all these populations tend to be minorities and people of color who live there on relatively low incomes. Right, They're being pushed right. out. Now, are they being pushed out to the suburbs where there's poor public transport? Mm -hmm. So that's the question. What's the, if they're being pushed out to places that actually that maybe they have a I don't know if they have more money in all places that's easy access. Where there are jobs, that's fine. But I suspect they're being moved to other areas that where life isn't going to be so good for them. So I, I agree with you, Denise. I think the gentrification can be a good thing. Or not even a good thing, it just is. It just, it is. just kind of is. It's like our waves sure. a good or bad thing. They just kind of are. Yeah. But I think we do have to be careful that people 
who are being displaced. Right, you know, we right. know we know where these cognizant of that's actually happening. Now, do you guys know many examples of neighborhoods or cities where there is a wide array of incomes within a close proximity to each other? I mean, London's close. At least it used to be five or ten years well, ago. I was say, if you look at things places like Elephant and Castle, yeah. there is still a lot. But then you are having a lot. Again, I don't know how this works in the states with, I guess what you call projects. But you have like the Haygate Estate, uh-huh. Elephant and Castle, which was sort of had hundreds and hundreds of working class families. That's been bulldozed. They've been decanted in quotation marks to other places, or said right. well, you can buy a place again, but it'll cost you basically what you can't afford. So um, I don't know. I mean, is it? Like New York, it seemed to be kind of like that, but then that's been well, massively gentrified. Yeah, I know more about Chicago, I guess, okay. in terms of public housing. And there were, you know, in the 80s and 90s, these huge public housing high-rises, which didn't turn out very well mm. for the residents or for the surrounding neighborhoods. Just the concentration um, just was not a good design, basically. And so they've opted for uh, attempting to do more mixed-use communities. That's kind of a trend in public housing now is where you uh, you basically set up housing developments that also have spaces for businesses to fill in and you set rates uh, at diff- you set apartment and housing com- or housing units at different rates so some are at public housing some are at kind of a controlled level and some are at market rate basically in order to get more people of different incomes living right next to each other the thing is is that I think that sounds great um, I actually wrote my senior thesis on this issue when I was in college, and I, you know, of course, mixed income, mixed use, awesome. But do we see that organically happening anywhere? I, That's the issue. I think what tends to happen is that you do get the low income and maybe low middle income, but the, the people on higher incomes don't want to live there, right? Because they don't want to be. There gets to be this idea that estates have crime, and you know, there's people around who aren't necessarily working or what have you, and people say, well, actually, if I can live in a luxury apartment. Mm-hmm. somewhere else near Central Park or whatever I'm going to live there or I don't know what Chicago the geography is but mm-hmm. or somewhere nicer in quotation marks why would they live in a mixed community so you have it's fine for the middle to bottom but also often I know in this country the developers don't actually like to make mixed communities because it, there's no money in it for them right. because if they can sell a house for you know 500,000 pounds or a flat for 500,000 pounds to a well off family they will whereas what's what's in it for them to sell it for 250 right. to a low income you know what this is making me think of? It's the kind of the first phase of gentrification, basically where uh, when you get the young, like, artist-esque mm. types mm. who move into a neighborhood that perhaps doesn't have a lot of people who mm. look like them, mm. and then that sort of becomes the, the first influx of gentrification mm. because then as more of the creative types move in, then other people of higher incomes get more mm. comfortable mm. with it. Yeah. And it kind of, the yeah. way it begins. I think what's also a shame is that it sounds like what was being created in Chicago was such a great thing, but that that can so easily fall prey to attacks from like the people who think that people who accept welfare are lazy or you know just sitting on their butts not doing anything all day, and that it seems like the creation of these kind of mixed income households or, or living yeah, areas, yeah. yeah, are really vulnerable to those kind of attacks. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I actually, I also, I lived in a, an apartment building in Indiana that in South Bend that was really cool. It was uh, a converted high school. Oh, wow. And so my, my apartment was in the old library, which mm-hmm. was really neat. But that building had um, had public housing units, had Section 8 housing. And, it, and then it had a lot of students. I was just out of college. Um, and it had this great, amazing 
fascinating mix of people. You know, there are some small families and people with young kids, and then there were some elderly people. Uh, most of the people in public housing uh, vouchers in my apartment building were elderly. And then there were a bunch of us who were students, student age or young professionals. That worked out really well. Sure. I, I mean, that was the closest knit community that I've lived in in any of the apartments that I've ever had in multiple different states and countries. So I don't know. I mean, my personal experience says that it was great, but I just don't see it. It's not organic, you yeah. know? I mean, that's very good. I suspect that's the exception rather than right. people. I mean, it sounds fantastic, and if only everyone would... If only everyone would like, move to South Bend, Indiana and live in the utopian, <laughs> utopian community of Central High Apartments. Yeah. Exactly. So now we move on to our predictions and prognostications, a segment we like to call I Predict a Riot. Chris, start us off. Cool. So thinking about um, infrastructure and how that relates to inequality, a lot of people are sort of saying the next big thing are, say, driverless cars or teleworking. So making working easier, making working faster and better. I don't think that kind of technological fix will save us as a society or help inequality one jot, quite frankly. I think it'll make things easier for middle-class whites because they'll be able to afford the driverless cars. They'll be in the kind of jobs that were helpful for teleworking, and they won't help the people at the bottom. So... In fact, it'll actually even make it even easier for people who are rich and middle class to avoid the or in this little pod of a car or at home or whatever in their little little, little co-working space. So I think those kind of technological fixes are, are misguided. Hmm. So, Chris, I see your point as saying that the white middle class elite are kind of emerging into their own little bubble and becoming less connected to society. And my prediction would be that perhaps that isn't necessarily true. Because in the news now, we're seeing the case of Brock Turner, the Stanford swimming student who um, is accused and convicted of sexual assault. And that case, which has gotten global attention, really, is really drawing attention to the role of privilege in that case. Um, and that someone who thought that they were good at what they did in swimming and that they got into this elite university was above any kind of law or any moral code. And the discussion surrounding that issue is that really he's not, and everybody knows that, but it's easy, I guess, if you're in that bubble to forget that. So I think my prediction is that things like this can work to break that bubble and kind of bring everyone more down to earth and down to reality. So my prediction goes back to the relationship between place and ideology. Over the last decade or so, decade plus, basically in the 21st century that we've seen it, people have been writing a lot and studying a lot about how we're sorting ourselves into places where our ideologies, lifestyles, point of views kind of align with other people around you. You know, you see a lot of outdoorsy people moving to Colorado, see a lot of like left-minded hippie folk moving to Vermont and and those sorts of regions. Um, And those people have to come from somewhere, so obviously they're leaving other places and particularly young people are leaving small towns and rural areas. My prediction, I'll say is a little bit edgy perhaps, um, is that we will see this trend will not continue indefinitely, that there will be a reversal of that trend where young people aren't flocking to metropolises at the same rate and that they do perhaps start to set up homes in smaller cities, smaller towns.
All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Denise Barron and Chris Gilson, and our interviewees, Jonathan Roden and Margaret Weir. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron. That's me. With contributions from co-host Sophie Dunselman. That's me. And Chris Gilson. And also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're pretty great. The contents and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter.lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, audio recordings, smoke signals, carrier pigeons on an extra innings podcast later this season. Be sure to tune in to our next episode when we'll be talking about federalism and look out for our extra innings segments on Obama as a transformative president and gun violence. Thanks for listening. Again, Muppets, Phenomena, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> phenomenon and rural. This isn't an easy script. No, it's not. <laughs> phenomenon and rural. Rural. Rural, rural. <laughs> Urban, suburban. Urban, suburban. Perfect. Yeah? Yep. Cool. That's it. Woohoo! Can I? Yep, yeah. Yep. End it.